I'm steady trying to find the motive. Why do what I do? The freedom ain't getting no closer. No matter how far I go, my car is stolen. Stolen. No registration. Cops patrolling. Patrolling. And now they don't stop me and I get locked up. They won't let me out. They won't let me out. Locked up. They won't let me out. No. That song dropped when I was in high school. I actually remixed it and called it Locked Out because at Northeast, uh, so shout out to my Northeast people if you remember this, if you were late to class, they would lock the door on you. So uh, I made the remix called Locked Out. Uh, it was pretty hot. I didn't get a chance to record it or anything. YouTube was definitely coming on the scene then, but uh, I was a freshman in high school when I made that remix. But anyways, that song that you just heard is Locked Up by Akon. Shout out to Akon Man doing so many big things in his community of Senegal and all around the world. So, hey, what's good, everybody? It's Cedric Warren with Zed Talk. Get it? Like, Zed Talk, but it's me. couple of things. Let's go ahead and jump into the topics. Uh, as I mentioned on the video I posted on Wednesday, of course, we we're going to talk about the NFL and a national championship game. So let's jump off with the national championship game. Uh, college football season is officially over. Uh, sad to see it go, but definitely we'll be counting down the days till we get our kickoff again in end of August, early September. So I just want to say, if you listened to the podcast before, that I called it, right? I said LSU would be the national championship. I did say that LSU and Iowa State would play each other. I thought Ohio State would be good enough to beat Clemson, uh, which they showed they did, but they could not close the deal towards the end. Those missed opportunities, kicking field goals instead of scoring touchdowns, definitely hurt their uh, chances to win that game. And I would have had the national championship uh, pick plus the winner. So LSU won, uh, again, one of the best college football seasons ever. Uh, Mike Greenberg uh, posted some stats while on his show of Get Up, I think earlier this week, I think it was on Tuesday morning after the national championship game. And I mean, LSU beat like seven, you know, AP, seven games against AP top 10, top 10 teams and won. Uh, and they averaged a winning margin of like almost 20 points, 20 points. So, I mean, that's just fantastic. Joe Burrow truly showed why he was the Heisman winner. Uh, he did not fault under pressure, did not crumble. Uh, Clemson got to him early. I will say that. I show shout out to Brent Venables for the defense. Uh, he was only having three down linemen, so pressure was very hard to pick up initially. But LSU's coaches definitely made great adjustments and uh, allowed uh, Joe Burrow to do what he does. Uh, Jamar Chase, have a day, right? Have a day. Um, over 200-something yards, 200, I think it was like 220 yards, about 10 catches. I mean, he he got off. If he could come out uh, for the NFL draft, he definitely would be a top pick. But he's only a sophomore, so he'll be back next year. So that team is very talented. It's got a lot of – Young players, young studs, definitely on the defensive side of the ball. Stingley uh, Jr., I mean, played huge. And you're going against, you know, T. Higgins, Justin Ross. I mean, 
T. Higgins is definitely a first-round pick. Justin Ross will be a first-round pick when he goes out next year. Next year, uh, you you're playing against Trevor Lawrence. You know what I'm saying? Somebody who is clearly a Heisman finalist uh, should be a Heisman finalist. I think he'll actually get the Heisman Trophy next year. I don't see anyone else uh, being much better than him. So that defense really stepped up against a lot of heavy hitters. I mean, you're talking about guys who are going to go to the NFL and do very well. Uh, like I said, Clemson will be back next year. Uh, we all know the conference isn't that strong, so who's really going to stop them? They're going to have that one game where they slip up slightly. You know, it'll be close. Like this year was the game against North Carolina when it went to overtime or it was about to go to overtime. And uh, so they usually have like one slip up, but I don't see anybody stopping this machine. They're going to be right back into the college football playoff sitting at 14, 15 and 0 or whatever and ready to claim another title. So um, I did say that if Trevor Lawrence were to win this year, come back and win next year, he would be like the greatest college football player of all time. To come in as a freshman, never lose a game, win three national championships and probably the Heisman his final year. I mean, that's that's unprecedented. You know, uh, he he's somebody who could have honestly been in the position to win the Heisman two times in a row. Um, but, you know, other players definitely stepped up and, and played good, good ball. But uh, I will say it was a good college football season. I enjoyed it. Uh, I enjoyed the playoff games. I thought they were good. Uh, I'm glad nobody just got truly blown out except for that LSU-Oklahoma game. Uh, Oklahoma did deserve to be there based off of the people who lost and everything like that. But I knew that team wasn't that strong. And just watching LSU all year, they were just a, the best team uh, out there. And shout out to Coach O. Uh, great um, way to solidify that season. Probably one of the best seasons in college football history. Uh, he definitely deserves that job. He truly loves the state of Louisiana as well as LSU. So uh, excellent, excellent coaching. I am seeing some of his staff uh, being brought to the NFL. I think the uh, defensive coordinator is now the coach at Baylor and one of the offensive quarterbacks uh, callers is going to Carolina with Matt Rule. Uh, to be that offensive, work on that offensive staff. So, I mean, that's what happens when you start to win. You win big. Uh, people see that your staff is talented and they want to bring them a part of their staff as well. So, um, shout out to those guys. And if you're in leadership, you, you want your guys to go up. That just, I mean, that makes your program better, right? You'll find somebody else to fill the position. But if players are knowing that they have an opportunity to get to the next level, if coaches have the opportunity to get to the next level, which for them is the NFL, they're going to come to your program and be attracted to it. Uh, just look at Clemson. You know, they they basically started winning, kept winning, and now they're putting top draft picks, you know, in the league every single year. The last year, their whole defensive line went first round within like the first 15 picks, which is amazing. So, all right, moving on to the NFL. For we got championship, uh, conference championship weekend this weekend on Sunday. We're kicking off with the Titans and Chiefs at three, and then the Niners and Packers at six forty. Uh, so everybody's probably surprised by the Titans, right? I know I am. Uh, the only people I can probably say who aren't surprised are the Tennessee Titan fans that I know. Uh, that's my homeboy Micah, my Sans Tish, my pro fights Pat and A Harris. That's probably all the Tennessee Titan fans that I know, like, to be honest. And they're probably a little surprised, but they definitely believe that they could get something done. Tennessee has a simple game plan, right? It's simple. Run the rock. I got a boulder of a man running the ball in Derrick Henry. 
245 pounds. I mean, if you're a corner, you're all at 5'11", 190, you know, you may be strong, but that's a lot of weight coming at you downhill. And when he dropped that shoulder, I don't know if you want to take that hit. So it's real simple. Run the ball, establish the run. Uh, The announcer said it in the... Uh, game against the Patriots, Derrick Henry needed to have several big runs plus go over 100 yards, and he did just that. Uh, so Tannehill is also playing his role. I won't. He isn't playing great, but he's not doing anything to lose the game, and that's all you can ask in a quarterback who's not necessarily a superstar, right? You don't want to necessarily rely on him to go out there and win the game for you, but if he doesn't lose it for you and you can stick to your game plan, then... You know, that's all you can really ask. I mean, Tannehill was a wide receiver in college. Then he gets drafted. He goes to Miami, plays quarterback. That's horrible. Um, You know, it's Miami. So, you know, how well are they actually going to do? But they did beat the Patriots, which then put them in a position to play the Titans to then lose again. So who knows? Um, But, you know, in that Patriots game, he made key throws. I mean, he made the throws he had to make. And now they're moving on, um, and it's exciting. Then against Baltimore, same thing. Run the rock, keep it downhill. Defense is playing amazing. Uh, and they've gone against some some good receivers uh, in Baltimore, just offensive power in Baltimore. Of course, with Brady under center, you know, no matter who's at wide receiver, tight end, wherever, he's going to make them make plays. Uh, so defense has definitely stepped up big. Uh, the Chiefs. We all know Mahomes is a monster. Uh, We saw that against a game against uh, the Texans. And I right now it's it's very hard to go against that offense when you're down 24 nothing and then you storm back and drop 51 points on an NFL team. This isn't college, right? This is an NFL team. These are paid professional players, the the best of the best, right? And they give up 51 points. Uh, I said to myself, like, if you're Coach O'Brien, what do you say in the locker room, not only at halftime, but at the end of the game when you've just had this huge lead? And they had all the momentum, too, the block punt, uh, the pick six. I think there was a pick six. I mean, just all the momentum going their way, and yet still they could not – get the job done uh so fast starts are important for the chiefs of course so that's definitely going to be an integral part of their offense and winning Uh, so we're moving to the nfc now with the packers and niners the late game Packers need to make sure the run is established with Aaron Aaron Jones. Um, I saw that against the game against Dallas. I mean, he just pounded us. And if Aaron Jones can get going, they're they're pretty tough to stop. I think those are a lot of teams. Basically, you establish a run, you're gonna you're gonna open up the pass. You're gonna just wear defenses down, and they're gonna need to find a way to slow you down. Um, and it's kind of demoralizing when a running back can just keep breaking off six, seven, eight, nine yard runs each time for first downs. It controls the clock. Um, defenses out there longer, so. So uh, Rodgers is going to be Rodgers. He's going to scramble around in the pocket, jiggle around, dance, do whatever he does, get open, make throws to Devontae Adams um, and every, all his other receivers. So uh, he definitely won't lose you the game at all. Um, so uh, I will say, though, it's hard to go against the Niners because two things, that Niners defensive line is truly a stalwart. You got Bosa, you got Eric Armstead, you got um, – DeForest Buckner, and shout out to Armstead and Buckner, both Oregon Ducks, um, holding it down on the defensive line. And who says the Pac-12 can play defense? Um, yep, and he got boasted. So that that line is very tough. Plus, you got Richard Sherman on the outside. Uh, so there's a lot of help at the linebacker position, plus the corner position. So uh, it will be tough for the Packers. I think that's going to be the best game out of the two. 
Uh, I think the Titans will have met their match against the Chiefs, and they will um, come up short. I got the Titans losing probably by double digits, at least 14. So I'm thinking Chiefs 38, Titans 17. And then for the Niners and Packers game, I'm going to go with the Niners. I'm going to go with Jimmy G. Uh, He's getting the ball to his playmakers. Uh, He's a product of the Patriots. And if you look, all the people who were behind Tom Brady have done very well. Jacoby Brissett has done well in uh, Indianapolis. And I mean, he got them in playoff contention, got them to the playoffs. I mean, he's, he's doing, you know, what he can do with the people around him. So that system obviously in New England with coach Belichick is, is working really well for all his players. So, uh, I'm gonna go with Jimmy G and the Niners as much as that pains me, uh, to say, uh, so my homeboy Daniel is probably listening and like, yep, you should roll with the Niners. I'm a Cowboys fan. As y'all know, I'm wearing my Cowboys hoodie right now. Uh, but the Niners, man, they went four and 12 last year and now all of a sudden, you know, they put some pieces together and 13 and three or whatever. Like this is, this is unfair. I need Dallas to get it together so I can brag and boast anyways. Uh, so yeah, my Super Bowl pick is the 49ers and the chiefs. And I'll right now I'm gonna go ahead and say that the chiefs will win it all. So, and again, the only chiefs fan I know is probably my homeboy and the guy who created my logo, my pro fight, uh, Donald Wilson, a.k.a. Don Swag. So shout out to the first family of Swag, the Wilsons. All right. All right. So moving on. Second topic, we want to talk about diversity and inclusion at predominantly white institutions or PWIs. Uh, So I was I get the New York Times uh, in my work email. We got a free subscription and I was able to read a story recently that happened at the uh, University of Wisconsin about a homecoming video that was made where it was supposed to gather a lot of uh, spirit and it was supposed to be reflective of the University of Wisconsin community, and it was. they made this video, asked a different lot of student groups, a lot of just students, faculty, staff, everybody through the University of Wisconsin to be a part of this video, tell them what Wisconsin meant to them, what the university meant to them, what it meant to be, you know, a badger, which is their mascot and all that stuff. And they included several minority groups, one of them being Alpha Kappa Alpha Sorority Incorporated. And they were told that they would be included in this video. Once the video played, uh, that group was not included along with many others. uh, as well. So it was the issue came up that here we are at this predominantly white institution. Yes, we know that the institution is predominantly white, but when you're talking about the full campus community, there are more than just white people on your campus. And to create a video that excludes that is problematic. Um, so it did raise a lot of uproar. Um, it did later lead to some other instances, protests, um, you know, racial slurs and things like that. And that type of stuff happens on predominantly white campuses. Uh, they are very reflective of the world we live in. So if you went to one, you probably know that, you've seen that. Um, all my black students, students of color have likely witnessed Um, something, some racial incidents happening in their years on campus. Uh, Because the fact of the matter is is that while you can put as many black people on the pamphlets and the websites and things like that, uh, we know that there's still plenty of students, faculty, staff, administrators who do not want uh, blacks 
and other people of color at their universities. And it's the same thing that's echoed down in the United States. It's a systemic part of the country. It's systemic racism, and it carries not only through our country, but also into our education system from kindergarten all the way through higher ed. Uh, so just a couple stats to give you, right? And the question I want to ask is, how do we make these universities, predominantly white universities, more welcoming to students of color, uh, black people, Hispanics, everything else, right? Uh, especially those from lower income areas as well, because they're still that's another barrier that they face, too. So uh, just to give you some stats on African-American enrollment and retention, 87 uh, percent of black undergraduates in the U.S. attend predominantly white institutions, according to the National Center for Education Statistics. Bet you can't say that five times fast. Huh. Um, another interesting fact that I saw on this report was that I think around 21% uh, the rest come from HBCUs, of course. So uh, I found an article talking about retention, right? And again, the question is how to make these universities more welcoming to students of color, right? We don't want to just get them there, right? It's not just getting them there. It's also about getting them there and supporting them while they are there making sure they have the resources and tools uh, for their full academic success because college is a time where you're growing as a young adult. And I'm speaking to the fact of people who are traditional college students coming in at 17, 18 years old, graduating by the time they're 21, 22, 23 years old, however long, hopefully not too far past 23, unless you're like in a six year program type thing or something. Anyways. so we're talking about, you know, traditional college students. So here are some factors um, from an article I found doing some research on uh, that affect retention. There are five components of what they call the racial climate. Right. And the racial climate basically talks about the current beliefs, judgments, outlooks within an academic society about race, ethnicity and diversity. Uh, so quick question two to consider as well. What does diversity look like? What does that mean to you in an academic in an academic setting? Uh, is it just having more black kids in the class? Is it just having more topics to explore and more organizations? Uh, what does that look like? Is it just black and white? Of course, is it further than that? Um, I think within the state of Wisconsin, the state is probably only about five percent African American. Uh, if that. So it's a very low percentage. And then I saw too that many of them choose to go outside of the state of Wisconsin as well. But for those who choose to attend, there needs to be the climate for them to uh, be successful. So um, the five components are a legacy of affecting retention, uh, legacy of inclusion or ex- uh, exclusions, excuse me. Uh, So that basically means like how has the university focused on getting students of color to attend their white their universities? Have they focused on um, keeping them there? Are they talking about being inclusive? Uh, Are they talking about having faculty and staff inclusive? Um, So that's where we get that particular um, particular. Excuse me. Uh, 
component. Uh, compositional diversity is the second one. So we're talking about the campus racial climate, um, you know, the number of displays of various members of color or ethnicity on the college campus, right? So we're talking about students and staff and faculty and organizations, you know, where there is a lot of different representation going on. Um, you know, we want more staff and faculty uh, of color at PWIs because they can serve as mentors and role models. I told somebody, uh, one of my colleagues, maybe a couple weeks ago, right before the Christmas holiday, that students of color not only face, you know, um, and we if we were talking about first generation college students, so first generation college student and a low income student, you know, you're you're facing the first time going to college, you don't have the family support in the in the terms of the knowledge of navigating the college system, and then you get to a predominantly white campus where you don't see as many people who look like you, uh, which plays a role, and I think that's hard for white people to understand because everywhere they go, they're likely not the the lesser of everything else um if you're listening so how many times did you walk into a classroom on the first day scope out the class and see like is there another black person in here because i did it trust me uh as a male and a nursing major i definitely did it and as the classes went on the number of us dwindled and i think maybe a couple people that i knew finished out the nursing program with me not with me but who were starting with me and went through um, and it even it, it was a little more as I got into my history classes, but still um, not not too many. Uh, so, you know, we need more uh, students. So those students are facing barriers, not only of you know financial barriers, first time experiences, but they're facing barriers of who do I turn to when I have a problem outside of academics? Right. What if my professor is biased against me? What if the students in the classroom are biased, biased against me? Right. Uh, so the third one is the psychological climate. Um, and that's just opinions about cross-cultural group relationships in the institution. How well are these groups interacting with each other? How well do people feel like this should happen? Um, you know, that's going to determine how well the campus really responds to in, um incidences and also embraces diversity, right? Uh, it's going to shape their viewpoint on discrimination and how to handle those things as well. Uh, next one, behavioral climate, pretty self-explanatory, of course. You know, how do people act? You know, I remember maybe a couple years, I think two years after I graduated, and if you're, you're a USC grad between 2000 anybody recently between like 2009 to 2012 13 you remember that a girl wrote in the uh, library on a whiteboard reasons why the Wi-Fi sucks and she put niggas on there as one of the reasons and so apparently black people affect Wi-Fi so you know how well and, and how well is a university responding to that? And what is the behavior that is going on with students on campus? Um, you can talk about many, many instances around the nation between um, racial slurs being written, nooses being found on statues and things like that. Uh, so structural diversity um, is the last one that we talk about. Um, 
you know, and that's how the university, according to this article, how the university distributes its budget, creates curriculum, hires faculty, staff, admits students, and goes about its daily practices, right? So when we look at a, a organizational structure, are we seeing black faces in administration, higher ed administration, uh, throughout the different departments? I currently work for a predominantly white institution, and in mine, I don't see any. I know maybe one or two professors of color are there, and it's an issue, and I'm pretty sure you know, other students of color who are in there see it too. Um, it is tough to not see. Um, and it's one thing I definitely want to address um, in my career, my public health career, is definitely encouraging more students to get into public health, more black students to get into public health, uh, minority students to get into the field and then go on to teach uh, because many of the topics in public health, especially when it comes to, you know, equity and diversity and stuff like that, you know, we're, we're the people that you need to talk to uh, on the ground and, you know, people like people who can relate to each other and stuff like that. So uh, again, this is really a section I want to ask the questions about you, you know, I want to hear your experience. So, so let me know some stories and experiences you had at your PWI uh, that, you know, you either felt excluded or tell me if you felt like a there was an environment of inclusion at your PWI. Um, because, you know, I don't want to paint every picture of every PWI as this super racist Jim Crow place. That's not the case. Uh, some places do very well. Some are very welcoming to students, depending on the area of the country. And... You know, so I want to hear your uh, thoughts and your stories. So just shoot me an email with a paragraph or so about that. I plan to share these later on a new episode and I will definitely get to you to those to you. Uh, in doing that, I want to mention a um, a great, great uh, thing I am a part of, and it's called the Black Alumni Summit. Uh, this got started in, I want to say towards the end of 2017, the thought process, um, and going into 2018, which was our first official conference where we have gathered Black Alumni Associations from mainly around the Southeast, but around the country as well now, to come together uh, to basically support Black students and the Black alums at our universities. Uh, the mission of the Black Alumni Summit is to unify and empower Black alumni individuals and groups through civic engagement, economics, and advocacy. So we had our first inaug you know, our inaugural um, conference in 2000. So 2019, 2018, I want to say. Nope, 2019, because I was living in India and I drove down. 2019, we got started in 2018. Uh, so we have uh, a lot of partnering schools, 10 plus partnering schools that include Auburn, Alabama, the Citadel, Duke University, Florida State University, Georgia Tech, uh, Louisiana State University, uh, University of Georgia, University of Florida, University of North Carolina, and of course, my alma mater, the University of South Carolina. Uh, so we're working to you know reclaim the power of alumni network and define it in the way 
way that ties us to the principles that we as black alumni know well, uh, and that's unity, self-determination, collective work and responsibility, cooperative economics, purpose, creativity, and faith, you know, all those things encompassing. So we have our 2020 conference coming up in February. It is at uh, the at the campus of Florida State University. Uh, it is a fantastic conference. It's just a great way to network too and know that there are other people just as passionate like you about creating the best environment for our students and our alums and engaging our alumni networks as well and creating big networks that we as black people can rely on. So I want to promote that. If you want to learn more, the website is www.blackalumnisummit.com. Uh, you can follow us on Instagram at Black Alumni Summit, Facebook as well, Black Alumni Summit, and I will drop the links in my comment section. So again, share your stories to my email, smwarren1906 at outlook.com, and we will get to more of that. All right. So lastly, the last thing I want to get into is uh, something that has been on my kind of master topics list for a while. But I, I was getting to a lot of other sports things and stuff like that. I wanted to get into U.S. incarceration and prison reform. And I think it's definitely something that as we go into an election year and it's something that's important every year that our candidates talk about, our local candidates talk about, um, you know, governments from the federal level to the local level, you know. So again, here's another one where I'm asking a question, right? How do we prevent increasing prison populations among black people and people of color? Uh, Yes, I identify, like I said before, things are very systemic. And that's definitely one system we need to take down, right? That's from judges to lawyers to cops who are unfairly treating black people and sentencing and things like that. Um, but how do we kind of connect more on a community level and, and, and steer people on a better path, right? How do we dismantle systems that are causing people to fight for their life every single day by turning to illegal activity? Because you know that's, that's, a, that's happening, right? If you got to survive and somebody says, go work for $10 an hour at McDonald's or, you know, you can lose some weight for much quicker, much sooner. You know what I'm saying? If that's all they know, that's all they've seen. Why not go towards that? Right. So um, we have to account for the effects of black people getting arrested. Right. And then not just getting arrested and getting out, but like the social mobility that comes with um, the ability to move up socially afterwards, right? So it's not just get out, you paid your debt, go get a job, go back to college, you know what I'm saying? That's much tougher for black people and people of color. Uh, so just a couple stats, I'd like to drop some stats on you. End of 2017, 475,900 black inmates to 436,500 white inmates. Uh, in 2007, these numbers were, so 10 years, well, a little over 10 years ago now, uh, the data was reported out a couple years ago, um, were 592,900 to 499,800, uh, that's black to white. So we've seen a decrease, right? So that's a good thing. Um, seeing a total 20% decrease in the number of black inmates. All right. But so like I said, good news, but how do we decrease that more, right? There's still hundreds of thousands of people locked up. And I know recently a lot of people in different cities that are legalizing marijuana have begun to cut the sentences of those who have been charged, which is another great thing. Um, you know, so the systemic racism is definitely the foundation of it all. And, and that has to be torn down. But as it's being brought down, how do we 
essentially, you know, dismantle the screws and the other pieces that hold it together, right? Um, we definitely fall short in equitable services, especially after people get out of prison and jail. Um, you know, and especially the big topic too, I think the big topic that most people recognize as a very inequitable is the response to uh, drug charges, right? So we all know in the 80s when the crack epidemic came around, black people were criminalized for using, you know, these drugs and these illegal substances, heroin and everything else. Now, because the population has changed of who is affected, and if you don't recognize that, then there's not much I can do, but it is, is it's just simply facts. Now that the population of people affected has changed it and that's white people young white people 18 to 30 the stay-at-home mom the soccer mom the uh the doctor the lawyer the working professional the blue collar guy has been affected it is now a national response to do everything we can to get these people treatment whereas when our aunts our uncles our mothers our fathers our sisters our loved ones were strung out on crack and doing everything else we were criminalized we were put in jail uh we were just seen as everything besides human so um how do we begin to drop those uh rates as well you know so want to give you a quick um view of some prison reform i guess you can say topics or you know reasons why you should promote prison reform right and ask questions to your constituents and your uh government on why prison reform is important, right? So you just look at it from the human rights consideration, right? Simple standpoint of you're denying somebody the basic right of liberty. And I get it, let's let's not be, you know, let's not get it twisted. Like if you committed a crime, obviously there's punishment for it, but is every punishment necessary of the most harsh sentence? You know what I'm saying? Are we considering the circumstances that people are in? Uh, I saw a news article. I don't know how true it is. I have to look into it, but I, I saw it to where there was a guy who robbed a pharmacy and he left a note that said, my child is sick. I mean, that's basically like the John Q situation, right? If you've seen that movie, like he held up that hospital because he didn't have the insurance or the money to cover the surgery. And we are denying the right of a young kid to live. Right. And he didn't have the money. He didn't have the resources to get whatever medication he needed. You know, so he turned to whatever he had to do to take care of his kids. And if you're a parent, you understand it. Um, I've heard my mom say it plenty of times. My dad say it plenty of times. I do whatever I have to do to make sure you and your brother are okay. Uh, so, you know, are we really, you know, think about the effects that prison has on that, right? Not only that on the family. Um, so imprisonment and poverty. Uh, definitely disproportionately affects people in poverty. Uh, who can afford a lawyer? You know, criminal defense lawyers are, are expensive. Um, so if you don't have a lot of money to begin with to necessarily meet your basic needs, who can afford a lawyer that's charging you $40, $50 an hour, you know, to defend your son or daughter in whatever case? Um, so, and then you have to think about when the person who generates the income is in prison, that then sets a downward spiral. So now whoever's the breadwinner is now no longer bringing that money in and they have to rely on other means to be uh, employed. And then again, as I mentioned, when they get out, you know, it's like, what's the likelihood of them finding, you know, a better job? We say our country is a place of second chances, but you require people to, you know, list their offenses on the application. And then you say this doesn't help hold against it, but people are biased, you know, people are biased and they hold that stuff against people. 
and they often like to remind people of the things that they did. So uh, I just find it interesting for a country of second chances, a country of, you know, in our pledge allegiance and our everything else and on our money, money, we talk about God. God is forgiving. Um, and we should work to practice the same forgiveness that God does. Uh, so it's a good thing, as my pastor says, that we don't have to rely on man to forgive us. Um, so uh, the public health consequences. Hey, shout out to public health, my favorite uh, topic. Um, there's a lot of health implications going on, right? Think about people. Okay, so think about just the compounding effect, right? You don't have a lot of money to spend. So if you're already dealing with a health issue, right, going into prison, prison hospital systems aren't well equipped to actually handle not only the amount of prisoners, but the type of conditions that are being uh, that are being faced, right? Um, so people are being deprived of good nutrition, sanitation, uh, access to fresh air, you know, exercise is often available. And we're not talking about, you know, I mean, every prison, every jail isn't this upscale area, right, where all these things are available. Uh, we have people with psychiatric disorders, uh, HIV infection, tuberculosis, hepatitis B and C, and other STDs, skin diseases, malaria, malnutrition. I mean, it's just a, a myriad of things that take place. And so a lot of those starts are properly treated. And then when they get out, uh, those are still exacerbated by just the fact of living and not having enough money and uh, being properly treated as well. Um, Social impact, I kind of mentioned that, you know, social cohesion, how people look at people who've been arrested or been to jail, um, you know, family relationships, some of those weaken as well. And then we get to the money, right, which is the, the basis of our country, right? The bottom line is the most important thing, the cost of imprisonment, right? So we have to look at how much money it costs taxpayers. That's you, no matter what you look like, you pay in taxes. Um how much money that cost us every single year to house somebody who may just need rehab, who may need um, some just diversion, right? So who needs opportunity. Why not take some of these resources and this money that we're spending and put it to better use? Um, it's almost as if our country gets off on putting people in jail. It's, it's really sad. Um, and again, going back to the opioid crisis, drug crisis, difference between opioids and, and the crack epidemic is that we're seeing a lot of diversion plans come up. I've personally, you know, uh, sat in on presentations at conferences on these things. And I'm just thinking, where was this in 1983, you know, in 1980s and, and beforehand? So those diversion practices. And I'm pretty sure there were some out there, but not many, not not as the same push as there were. So, um those are just a couple things where prison reform is definitely important. And, you know, we want to see our black brothers and sisters free from this crime and in a way living the most profitable, profitable lives they can. Uh, this article came from the United Nations Office on Drugs and Crime. So I would definitely drop that link in the comments and let me know what you think. Give me your opinions, of course. Uh, you got my email now. So if y'all want to just give me topics or give me thoughts on a longer basis, definitely share that with me. All right. And with that being said, I offer you some advice. Vision boards are a popular activity among families, youth groups, churches, etc. They offer you a chance to put together pictures and words that define what you want out of the year 
or the next few years. For some people, they may sound trivial. What does a bunch of pictures have to do with my goals and what I want? Uh, well, these offer a vision of what you want, the life you want to live, the goals you want to achieve. When placed in front of you every single day, you have no choice but to confront yourself and say, am I going after this? I have my vision board in front of me right now. And every day as I work on this podcast, my nonprofit and everything else, I see it. I see what I want and I see what I want to become. The Bible says in Habakkuk 2.2, and, and Jehovah answered me, write the vision and make it plain upon tablets that he may run that reads it. So basically you need to write it down, right? As my pastor says, write it down, make it plain, put it in simple terms and go after it. Uh, if you want to buy a house, Google how to buy a house and then look at what you need to do to buy a house. Do I need to work on my credit? Do I need to start saving money for a down payment? What type of loans out there? FHA, uh, VA loans, you know, what type of things do I need? Do I want to travel more? Where do I want to go? How do I save money to travel? What are the options? Do I want to lose 50 pounds? How do I lose 50 pounds? You know, make it plain. Right now, I got my vision board. And not only that, I have note cards um, in front of me at my desk that tell me what I will be. And there's three things that I see myself as a philanthropist, nonprofit founder and advisor, and a social investor. Um, and I'm growing those things. Um, all those things won't happen right away, but I guarantee you that if you're consistent in your pursuit of what you want, it will come to pass. Hebrews 11.1 1 says, now faith is the substance of things hoped for. I'm pretty sure you've heard this verse before and the evidence of things not seen. So have faith that it will manifest. Keep working hard, keep staying consistent, and all these things that you have will definitely come to you for sure. All right. So that's all I got. Next week, we got my brother Justin back on the show. And beginning in February, I will be bringing you all Wellness Wednesdays, which uh, our host will also be helping me out is Coach Jock. All right. So be sure to cop a said talk team. Uh, link is in my Twitter and Instagram bio at irepta5. That is I-R-E-P-D-A-P-H-I-V-E. Thanks for listening. And we're going to let this Akon fade us out.